Welcome back. I'm your host Linda, as you know. I'm here by myself today, I hope, because my co-host Shane has had to actually go to work. So he's left Pazuzu here, his weird, creepy fucking Pazuzu statue here to be our co-host. This story that I have for you is wild. It's about a wrestler who he technically faked his own death or didn't fake his I don't know. Basically, someone said he was dead when he wasn't and he never came out with a woodwork to clarify or deny, you know? So this guy a nerd. <laughs> Sorry. But from what I could gather, he's the guy, the fall guy, right? So he never gets to win matches. He's just there to make the other guys like Dusty Rhodes say, look really big, you know, real stars. So he started imploring the promoters to allow him to win matches and to be pushed as a star. And he wrestled for just a handful of years from 1974 until 1977. He always wore a mask when he was wrestling and he went by the name of Mr. X. His pro wrestling career though was quite abruptly short when he was involved in a motorcycle accident. Now he suffered a few injuries but one of them was quite substantial. He had to get a steel pin inserted into his pelvis. So with his pro career over he basically focused his attention on this motorcycle shop that he bought back in 1974 right. Now he began an affair with a woman who well they say she was married but from what I could gather, she was actually separated at the time. Her name was Deborah Kindred. In 1977, Jerry was indicted on 13 counts of cheque forgery for writing bad cheques over international lines. The prosecution accused Jerry of paying for motorcycle parts in the Caribbean countries with fraudulent cheques. These were written while he was performing on overseas wrestling tours. Now, under federal law, Jerry actually faced 10 years per count because the checks were all for large amounts. And, and that makes sense. You know, go hard or go home. Like, you never see counterfeit money for under 20 quid, say, you know. And even then, it's usually under, it's usually over 50. See, so, yeah, like, if you're going to do it, you may as well fucking go the whole hog, you know. So... He was indicted in those charges, he faced a trial, he didn't want to go to jail. So, naturally, he just did a legger and he took Deborah and her son with him, who was basically would become his stepson, alright? So, prior to leaving Alabama, Deborah divorced her estranged husband and the pair then actually broke into the home of Deborah's second cousin, Ricky Allen Weida, and they stole his birth certificate driver's license and a social security card. Jerry actually used these pieces of identification to assume Weida's identity and he married Deborah under the Ricky Weida name. So, you know, now him and Deborah were second cousins that were married, which is so strange. So the couple and her son were now known as the Weidas and they were hiding out in Florida at the time. But like things haven't even begun to get crazy yet, okay? So Jerry was hired by King Wrestling promoter Campeon Escalara as a performer. Escalara wasn't aware though that Jerry, or Ricky as he was calling himself, was wanted by the American FBI. 
Later that year, the weed is relocated to the Bahamas to join the national or to perform at the National Wrestling Alliance events in Nassau. However, the Bahamian government told Jerry that his visa was soon to be expired and it wouldn't be renewed. So in late 1978, in a really fucking brazen move, may I add, Jerry and the Weeders basically returned to the States and they settled in Seattle, Washington. Jerry actually obtained a job at Boeing. Probably important to tell anyone that's afraid of flying to skip forward about 30 seconds because you won't like this. He obtained a job at Boeing by falsifying his college qualifications and stated that he graduated from the University of Cambridge in England. Now by this point as well, the FBI hadn't a clue where he was. They knew he went to Florida, then they knew he went to the Caribbean, but they couldn't figure out where he was now and they know no leads. And sorry, but can we just take a moment to appreciate the absolute lack of fucks that he had to give? So brazen. If he went straight, he would have probably done quite well, you know? Anyway, during the interview process of Boeing, Jerry demonstrated detailed knowledge of aerospace engineering, but he was fired in 1979 after company officials discovered that he'd actually forged his transcripts. So, like, he was there for a little while before they figured out that he was a fraud, which is just frightening. So, after a while back in the States, Jerry and Deborah started their own family and they had three children, okay? Now, fun fact... Their son, John Taylor, actually appeared as a personal trainer on the reality TV show Too Fat for 15 Fighting Back. Just a just a bit of a tidbit for you. So we're going to go back to Jerry's mom now for a minute, Marjorie, OK? Now, in 1979, Marjorie had her hands full because for several months, she was left dealing with the aftermath, the legal aftermath of Jerry's sudden disappearance from Alabama. She also was juggling with the police and the FBI with regards as being a, a mother whose son had went missing, you know. She was also dealing with that side of things and, and trying to help them and figure out where he went, you know, because she wanted to know where he was. Don't forget, he was only 23 years old at this point. So in January of 1979, Marjorie saw a photo in Life magazine and this photograph would change everything for her, okay, for the rest of her life. So the image depicted hundreds of dead victims from the Jonestown massacre from the previous November and she spotted Jerry and his wife Deborah along with Deborah's five-year-old son in this picture. Now a quick side note to refresh your memory or you know some people might not know what it is. On November 18th 1978 more than 900 adults and children who were members of an American cult called the People's Temple died in a mass suicide murder under the direction of their leader Jim Jones. Now Jones ordered, ordered being the appropriate word, his followers to ingest poison lace punch while armed guards stood by. This is actually where the term, you've probably heard the term drinking the Kool-Aid, this is where this term was actually coined and this event is now known as the Jonestown Massacre. So Marjorie contacted the US State Department's Jonestown Task Force and she told them that she wanted to claim the body of her son. But the State Department told her that none of them bodies were anywhere near close to being Jerry or his wife or his stepson. So dental x-rays had been taken of all the deceased and there were no matches with Jerry's dental records or Deborah's or the son's. Now this was also 
before DNA testing was available and the government was reluctant to release a body to anyone until the identity had been 110% confirmed, which is a given, you'd think, right? So Marjorie tried to send a task force an X-ray of Jerry's pelvis to show, you know, the steel pin, basically, that he had after the motorcycle accident. She demanded that they examine all of the unclaimed bodies to find out if any of them had a pin in their hip. The task force shut her down. They said, no, we can't do that. You know, this was months ago, so the bodies have decomposed a lot since then. And they were also damaged quite badly for lying, from lying for days in the hot sun, you know, initially after the event happened. So Marjorie, like understandably, became a bit obsessed with this photograph. And she told the press, there's no doubt in my mind about that figure being the body of my son. And she goes on to describe the figure and stuff which I, I will spare you. Now, a member of the Jonestown task force, who's called Reed Clark, he said that they enlarged the photograph at least 40 times, and he told the press, I defy anyone to say that to him. You know, you'd think she'd be thanking us instead of damning us. But Marjorie then went back to the press and said, I've tried in every way to have my son's body returned to me for a burial. I have insurance policies of all kinds that I cannot cash in until I have a death certificate or a certificate of presumed death. So the FBI was actually investigating the Jonestown lead, but they did ultimately decide that there was absolutely no evidence that this person was Jerry. It was known that Jerry and his wife had been in the Caribbean about a year before the massacre which his mother learned of when she was actually sent a 10 grand bill that her son had charged to her American Express card from the Bahamas. And prior to that, there had been a flurry of charges in Miami as well. In May 1979, 248 unclaimed bodies from Jonestown were sent to Oakland, California for burial. Now, according to a friend of Marjorie's, she was actually waiting for the plane when the coffins were unloaded and she was hoping to intercept them and locate her son, but she was unsuccessful. So the bodies went into the ground with Marjorie convinced that Jerry and his wife Deborah were among the 20 adults that were buried in this mass grave. It's really sad, you know. Marjorie had a tombstone made for her son and installed above an empty grave in the family plot at Maple Hill Cemetery in Huntsville, Alabama. The inscription reads in part, Sam, the State Department, along the bottom. Sadly, she actually died in 1983, and she's believed till the day of her death that her son, his wife, and their son were all victims of the People's Temple cult. The FBI actually placed surveillance on Marjorie's funeral on the chance that Jerry might turn up, but he didn't. So a few years after Marjorie died, and with no sign of Jerry, the authorities were satisfied that he actually was dead and they decided to drop all the charges against him. So everything was quiet until 1989 when a 34-year-old man named Ricky Weida was arrested and tried in Seattle for attempted murder. Ricky Weida shot his former business partner in the head following an afternoon of target practice on Tiger Mountain near Issaquah, Washington. Weida was booked into King County Jail, but his fingerprints soon revealed that he wasn't who he said he was because the real Ricky Weida living in Florida had committed a misdemeanor 15 years earlier. So his fingerprints were basically already on record. So the man in custody in Seattle wasn't who he said he was and he refused to give his true identity. He leaned on the Fifth Amendment 
which basically meant that he was protected from self-incrimination and he actually went through the entire trial as John Doe. A month after the trial though, a persistent King County police detective named Randy Mullinax finally sussed out the suspect's birth name, Jerry Bibb Balasok. Later in life, it basically came about that Jerry had decided that he preferred investment schemes rather than actually going out and getting a job, you know. So he drifted into the acquaintance of Emma Thompson, with whom he did business for a while. And, you know, they were friendly for a bit as well. But Thompson had began to step away from Jerry in a manner of as his friend and as his business partner. Jerry, not happy with this at all, invited him to go for target practice on Tiger Mountain. Thompson would actually later testify that he was shot four times on the mountain and the reason he was shot was because of a 1988 arson plot targeting the Columbian Hotel in Wenatchee, Washington. Jerry had purchased a hotel for $135,000 and taken out $4.6 million insurance policy on it about a month before it burned down. Throughout the trial, Jerry declined to answer almost all queries about his identity. He was addressed variously as John Doe and Ricky Weeda. Jerry claimed to have shot Thompson in self-defence, but the jury didn't buy it. And in February of 1990, he was found guilty and sentenced to 20 years in prison for attempted murder in the first degree. He was ultimately acquitted of the arson charges. And a few years later, in 1992, his wife Deborah divorced him. So Jerry's long stint behind bars were also characterised by multiple lawsuits against prison staff, all of which he lost, although one did make it to the Supreme Court. Jerry's life got even weirder though after he was released from prison in 2003. He changed his name from Jerry Bibb Balasok to Harrison Rains Hanover the following year. What a name. He then married two different women in quick succession and both women would later file protection orders against him for domestic abuse. In 2008, before they were divorced, the second of these women registered a non-profit with the state of Washington called the First Hanoverian Church, listing herself as the director and Harrison, as he now called himself, as the chairman. A year after the church was registered, he flew to fled to Costa Rica after he got busted on a failed scheme to embezzle about 4.6 million. The idea was to intercept funds to be paid by telecommunications companies Cox and Comcast to a mutual vendor that they both used. But the money was actually diverted into a bank account that Jerry had opened with an accomplice. The bank quickly froze the funds and Jerry ended up with about half a million in his pocket and skipped town. He then popped up in Nicaragua. In October of 2012 where he was arrested and charged with a handful of crimes related to sexual exploitation of minors. Jerry was sentenced to 24 years in a Nicaraguan prison and his lawyer found guilty as his accomplice received six years herself. In April 2013 a flurry of articles in Spanish language newspapers throughout Latin America reported that Jerry had suffered a heart attack while in prison in Granada, Nicaragua, and he died after being transferred to hospital. The newspapers actually tied the event to his former misadventures under the name Jerry Balasok and attributed the cause of death to extreme heat in a cell. This triggered other inmates' families to file complaints about the high temperatures that the prisoners were suffering, along with other health hazards within the prison. Now, normally a report of a prison's a prisoner's death in multiple newspapers would probably be enough to affirm their death, but 
with Jerry, I mean, you just never know, do you? So as of now, no death certificate for Jerry has actually been made publicly available and the location of his burial isn't known. In fairness, that's not weird considering that the last thing he was arrested for involved sexual exploitation of minors, which is pretty disgusting. But, you know, I guess with Jerry, though, you can't really be too sure, can you? In a weird way as well, it's kind of bittersweet that his mother died thinking he'd already died. It's horrible that she thought he died in such a horrible way, but she never was alive to see him start a weird cult or, you know, try kill someone or do bad things to children. So I guess it's a plus. And, you know, she also didn't have to be subjected to calling them Harrison. Anyway, on that note, that's all for me. You know where to find us, Worldwide Weird Pod on Instagram, and I will see you again very soon. Bye!